have a tendency, our reputation precedes us in many cases, which is people are intimidated because there's the possibility that they can fail. And that failure is, for a lot of people, difficult to swallow. Welcome to The Man of War with Rafa Kandi. The mission of this podcast is to forge men into warriors, to be transcendent leaders, protectors, and providers. You will strengthen your mindset, increase your self-confidence, and fortify your self-discipline as you become battle-ready to dominate all facets of your life. As always, listen at your own risk. Rise up a warrior, my brothers. Welcome back to the Man of War. My name is Rafa Conde, and of course, as always, I am your host and a man on a mission to transform you into a modern day warrior. Hey guys, what did you think of the new intro? I think it's badass. I like the tunes. I like the feel of it. So uh, let me know on some DMs out there if you like the new intro better than the old. Um, taking good feedback so far. Um, we're about at 99% of people really liking it. So anyways, Let's talk a little bit about what is happening out there in the month of April. All right, we have the crucible. All right, if somehow, some way your head is under a rock and for whatever reason you have not heard about this event, I'm telling you, you need to wake up. All right, the Man of War Crucible is happening April 10th through the 14th. We have four positions still available. This is a two-part interview process that you have to go through to get selected into the event, okay? Most events of this caliber go for seven, eight, ten thousand dollars. We're under the five thousand dollar mark. All right. So if you're ready to invest in yourself and you're ready to take it up to that next level, five days, four nights, Central Florida, undisclosed location, pretty much everything across the board is covered. So if you think you have what it takes and you are ready to take it up to that next level and be part of the Men of War Society, which happens when you graduate this event. It's an elite brotherhood of men who have graduated from the crucible. All right, if you're ready to take it up to that next level, go to wardevacademy.com forward slash crucible. That's W-A-R-D-E-V academy.com forward slash crucible. All right, the event is April 10th through the 14th, five days and four nights. Put in your app now. Don't miss this life-changing event. Another thing here, real quick. Guys, do me a favor. Go over to iTunes and leave us a review. We bring you some badass content week in and week out. This is 125 episodes of what you're listening to right now, the 125th episode. All right, so do that. That's all we ask, a small fee, a small token of appreciation from you. If Just go to iTunes and leave us a review, please, okay? Um, also, my uh, Instagram is blowing up right now. Uh, we've literally picked up at like 1,200, 1,500 new followers. Um, and when I say blowing up, like I said, I'm very young to, to uh, Instagram, only been there just about a year and a half since I started the podcast. Uh, so I want to hit 5,000 uh, by the end of this month. That's my goal, 5,000 by the end of March. So if you can help me with some followers, some tags, uh, anything that you can do, man, will be freaking awesome, will be highly appreciated. That's at Man of War with two R's. And I want to remind you that on March 11th, which is Monday, 
we're going to be announcing the new venue for the Conclave of Warriors 2. All right, this is going to be December 14th and 15th, but we're getting the ball rolling right now, and we're going to start bringing on speakers, introducing you to our speaker, our badass speaker cadre. And as always, whip out your pen and paper because this episode is extra special. Uh, Jeff Gonzalez is one of those guys that is not only wise, but tells it like it is. All right, here we go. Let's jump right into it. Jeff Gonzalez, man, welcome to the Man of War podcast. What an honor to have you on. Ah, it's my honor. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome, man. And, you know, the beautiful part about this is that I followed you for well over a decade here, man, and... Uh, You've transitioned into really cool stuff here. And, but what we're going to do here is this. Before we even get into this, I want you to introduce yourself for our audience. Sure. Well, my name is Jeff Gonzalez. I'm president of Trident Concepts. I'm currently the director of training for the range at Austin, which is a brand-new facility here in the state of Texas. Uh, my background comes from Naval Special Warfare. I spent the better half of my adult life there on the East Coast and the West Coast as an operator, as an instructor. I left the Navy and I pretty much started doing the same job just for a different organization. Uh, I did that um, overseas for for a good while, for probably about seven to eight years. In that time period, what had happened was I had stood up Trident Concepts. Um, it was more of a, I, I don't know how to explain it, it wasn't a, prim, it wasn't a priority at that moment. And by about 07, uh, the the time that I was spending overseas compared to the time that I was spending with Trident Concept became in conflict. So I had to make a choice. And truthfully, Trident Concept seemed to be the better long game than doing work overseas continuously. So we, uh, I, I officially retired from going downrange uh, about 08. And then I put all my efforts into Trident Concepts. And, you know, we really haven't looked back. I mean, it's, um, it's been about 18 years that we've been doing business, and I'm really excited and happy with the progress and the success that we've had along the way. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, what I want to get into here is basically, I mean, your journey, all right, your journey sure. where you came from, uh, we'll start off from there, and then how you got into the tactical world here as far as, you know, being in the mainland. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of what you did here also, you know, was focused on law enforcement, and we're going to go into how you've seen things change here over the last decade. So take us back when you were, you know, through BUDS and then kind of sure. into the civilian world when you made that transition. Um, so one of the things that was unique about my era was we traveled quite a bit to various training facilities and locations and schools. It was a uh, rite of passage for a new guy to go out and attend as many schools as he could come back and share that information with the collective, if you will. Um, it's changed over the years. It's cyclical in a sense, but in my era, that was the, that was the standard. So I traveled quite a bit. I got to know a lot of these facilities. Um, when I uh, when I moved out west to become a buds instructor, I got an offer from an organization to do work for them in the private sector, and it was a very it was very alluring. I was like, you know, it was kind of a rock starish profession, and so I was super happy about it. And so we took off on that path, and unfortunately, that path led into a brick wall. Uh, but I had, I'd already left the Navy and I'd made a determination that I was going to be successful one way or another. So while the original intention of leaving the Navy completely tanked, um, that's when I decided to go on my own with Trident Concepts. 
So um, I was pretty well suited for it because I was finishing up my tour of duty as a BUDS instructor. So we had a tremendous amount of effort put into your instructional capacity. I was also attending college uh, and my field of study was adult learning. So it was perfectly suited. So I had like all the pieces of the puzzle in place. My skill sets as, as an operator were fairly, fairly high. So uh, shooting was a very natural byproduct of that. So when I left the Navy and it, the first job enterprise completely fell through, we stood up trying concepts and we, we started, and people have to put it in perspective. At that time period, there weren't really anybody any any military grade instructors that were conducting training, there was a handful, and I mean literally, you can count them on one hand. When I left the Navy, so um, I was one of the very few professional trainers at that time that had the NSW background. Most everybody else was coming from the Army side, so it was it was a great time to be in that profession because we really were rewriting the books because we were moving out of an era that had been predominantly uh, law enforcement driven. And we were now bringing in the special operations viewpoint on combatives in, as a whole. So it was hugely, um, you know, it just was this roller coaster ride, if you will. When we stood up Trident Concepts, basically all I did was I took what I, what I knew from the Navy and just made it available to the public. And, and we had, we had great clients within the law enforcement sector, within the military sector and not, you know, we kind of started off slowly on the private sector uh, at that time period, you know, it made more sense to focus on things that we knew. So we mm -hmm. knew the law enforcement and the, and the military. So we focused there, but right. um, I couldn't, we couldn't keep turning away the private sector. I mean, it was just in such high demand that eventually, and it's very, again, I said this earlier, it's cyclical, you know, um, spending funds always are in a state of flux. So we might have a great run within the law enforcement community one year and the next year, the funding completely dries up and we can't get back out to see these guys on the, on the flip side, you know, the, the mill group guys, they get all, you know, they're back from rotations. They're ready to train. They've got the time off. So boom, we're in there for those guys. So, you know, it was kind of this weird cycle and we always were trying to fit the private sector in. And before interesting, we knew it, interesting. Yep. yeah, the, before we knew it, the private sector just kind of took over all of our, all of our time, all of our, our, our available training opportunities. So let me tell you, let me ask you something. Do you think the average man or woman out there that's carrying a concealed firearm nowadays is trained? Um, it depends on how you define trained. And that's, I think, kind of like the, um, that's the, the, the rub, if you will. Um, in my state of Texas, they have to go through a six-hour training class that includes a written test and a shooting test. Comparatively to other states, it's actually pretty high. Oh, yeah, it is. So, yeah. So, you know, it's very, it's a very subjective viewpoint. Now, put that aside. That's just what it is required for you to get your license to be able to legally conceal. Uh, I think every state's program is woefully inadequate at preparing the average citizen Agreed. for the everyday nuance of carrying a firearm for defense. So while the legal aspect is covered and it's general, it's kind of like it, it, it varies from state to state. I think all the states just do a very, you know, 
the way I try to tell people is like, listen, the state is going to do the absolute minimum that they need to feel as though they've met their due diligence to be able to write you off, to be able to carry a gun. And that's, that's it. hundred percent. Like, and I have, I have conflicting views of this simply because we're legislating a constitutional right. And I have, you know, on the one side, I feel it's important that the citizenry take the personal responsibility to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't feel as though that's the government's responsibility to do that. So it's kind of like a, it's a catch-22 to a certain extent. I agree. Um, being a, a police officer, one of the angles that I take, though, is seeing uh, so many murders and so many shootings and and people with a lack of knowledge to defend themselves. And, you know, I, I teach in the police academy, and uh, I do feel like if we're seeing that the individual, that the citizen itself is not going to go out there and get training— I do feel that then the next step will be to make licensing a little bit more difficult and requirements every year to keep that license uh, to to show, hey, at least some type of ability. Because I will tell you this, um, I have qualified hundreds and hundreds of security guards out there. In our state of Florida, a G license here, that's a joke. You go out there, Mm -hmm. you shoot... Uh, what, 40 rounds, 38 rounds, and the score is, is horrendous. I mean, you could shoot that with your eyes closed. And what I've seen here, unfortunately, is a lot of these, you know, so-called security guards or, or private detectives, you know, come and qualify every year. And throughout the entire year, they haven't touched their gun. They haven't cleaned yeah. their gun. And, you know, it's pretty scary because in a situation where, you know, God forbid, you were out there and they needed to draw the gun and use it and execute a plan of action, shit, you know, that gun, you know, malfunctions, there's there's an issue with the trigger, I mean, all, all sorts of things. Um, so I agree with you 100% uh, with that, but I also, I believe that if people aren't going to step up and you know, take some type of training in their hands. I think we got to make these licensing requirements a little bit stiffer. Well, um, I would disagree with you on that. And here's the reason why. One of the things that we do very well is we, we have, we have uh, very, very strict standards and our standards are difficult for people to make. And in some cases, it's a, it's a obstacle. People will rather than be positioned in a rather than put themselves on a position where they potentially could fail they don't do it agreed right? yeah so uh, so i see that from one perspective but on the flip side i also work a, a lot with the higher echelons of law enforcement with regards to standards training standards and um i've gotten a chance to see a lot of different programs and and i I've, I've seen what is successful and what, what is not successful and what i believe to be the recipe for success is it's got to be it's got what you're trying to say is that you've got to have you've got to take the responsibility on on your own to do this you can't it can't be forced upon you and i agree with that so you have to be able to incentivize the public at large to want to do the right thing i hate to say it that way but that's kind of what it is that's a great point yes so one of the ways that i've seen it in successfully implemented at a much smaller scale within the law enforcement community was with um, with their actual required qualifications. And there's there's all sorts of ways to do it, but one of the best ways that I've ever seen it was when the municipality on the East Coast, and the way they did it was 
out of the academy. You had a two-year probation that you had to qualify twice a year. You had to meet a minimum standard each qualification. So that's four qualifications that they had to do. And that minimum standard was 90%. Now, their qualification may or may not have been strict uh, nationally, but it was still a very good qualification as as they go. Mm-hmm. Now, if you made that 90% four times in a row, that brought you to the next tier. And that next tier, you had the option of carrying three different uh, um, firearms. So the, the one that you came out of the academy with and two more. Gotcha. So you got to choose at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you qualified two more years in a row, so now you're up to four years at 90%, then the, the next tier above that was you can carry anything you want. Right. Didn't matter, all right? And the department would supply you with the ammo. So if you if you decided to carry some wazoo crazy thing, they would mm-hmm. go out and purchase the ammo because you and, – and here was the thing. When I was talking to the range master about it, I'm like, okay, I got to ask. When you get – how many officers do you get to that third tier? It's like surprisingly we get a lot and we get a lot that actually stay there because if you fail one qualification, you go, you go back. all the way back to the right. – exactly. You go back to the beginning. So there's incentive for them to practice in between and not just wait for the qual and use the qual as their practice. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, then what happened was I asked him, what's the most popular guns? Here I am thinking, oh, these guys, these are guns. whatever. Or... Exactly. That's exactly what <laughs> yeah, I thought. Yeah. He said that he said that more than more than fifty percent of all of those candidates that are at that third tier mm-hmm. go back to the academy issued weapon. Wow. Interesting. So it, it blew my mind too, right? And and the way that they tracked it was pretty simple and it was it was ingenious. Because at that point, it kind of goes back to an old Bruce Lee saying, which is a punch is a punch and the kick is just a kick, right? So these guys that were making it all the way up to that third tier eventually realized that, you know what, it's, it's, I don't need to go crazy and I don't I need to go down this dark path to figure out, like, I want to be special and carry these unique firearms. Sure. They're like, I've demonstrated proficiency. I've demonstrated the responsibility that it takes to actually maintain this qualification for four plus years. We've all seen the news. Mass shootings and terror attacks can happen really anywhere and at any time. London, Paris, New York, Vegas. And after each tragedy, the politicians blame the very people who need protection the most. You and me. So we've teamed up with our new friends here at the United States Concealed Carry Association to give you a free copy of their complete mass shooting survival guide. The USCCA provides self-defense education, training, and legal protection to responsibly armed citizens like you and me. And now they want to give you a free copy of their new mass shooting survival guide. Just text the word survival to 87222 to get yours free right now. You're going to learn what we really know about mass shootings, how to survive an attack, proven strategies for stopping a shooter, and a whole lot more. It's packed with life-saving information that the anti-gun lobby doesn't want you to have. Plus, it comes with a bonus audiobook so you can listen whenever you want. You can claim yours in seconds. It's 100% free and for a very limited time. You're also going to get a bonus security checklist for your office, your church, or your school. Just text the word SURVIVAL to 87222. That's SURVIVAL 87222. I'm just going to make it easy on myself and go with – and the standard, I think the duty issue gun was a Glock 17. And he Mm. says that's more than – more than the vast majority of the department, because you have to include the guys that are out of the academy, plus these guys at the third tier, all carry a Glock 17. So right. it made it really easy for them. So now where does this and how does this apply towards what we were talking about? If we incentivize the general public towards making these little inroads at achieving 
standards, I, you know, it's, I, I kind of hate to use the cliche, but if you build it, they will come. And so when we start talking about state licensing, if you had multiple layers, layers of state licensing, for instance, the six hour, like in my state of Texas, you have to take six hours, right? That's the minimum to get your license. Mm-hmm. That license basically doesn't do you crap other than allow you to carry a concealed firearm, sure. right? You're limited in where you can take, where, where you can go with a firearm. Sure. But if you had a level above that, and that level above that said that you had to have, a, you had to not only just have the six hours, but every year you had to get 40 hours of additional training. And now you moved up to this level. And mm-hmm. at this level, now you can carry in restricted areas that oh, are- Oh man, I would love that. Yes. That, so at that yep. point, yep. what you've done is yep. you've incentivized the general public to go out there and actually seek education and training. That's great. And now before you know it, mm-hmm. Before you know it, you, you the folks that never want to move above that level one, great, fine, no, no, no harm, no foul. But the overwhelming majority of people will eventually want to be at that next level for two reasons. Number one, it's elite. People are going to say, "Hey, you know what? I sure. have the I have the top level card to carry." Right. Right. And then the <laughs> I mean, you got to. I hate to say it, yeah, but we are evil no. creatures. The, yep. the ego drives a lot of our decisions. Of so course. there's that. But then the second one is. Um, it's going to be just from a performance point of view, people that are going to say, you know what? I want to be able to carry when I'm at my kid's softball game. I want to be able to carry when I have to go to a parent teacher conference. I want to be able to carry if I need to go to some location that prohibits firearms. So, you know, that next level to me would really break ground in some, some like when, when you get into the anti-gun arguments, a lot of times we're painted as in, you know, incompetent or ignorant or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you have this program that clearly defines m- metrically that this individual is educated and training above and beyond what is required, it's kind of hard to bring that argument to the table anymore. So when you are sitting here saying, why are you, why are you pushing these gun control measures at this location? When you can have these individuals that have gone above it, I mean, it's like a driver's license, right? Who really goes out and actually goes and does an, uh, a third-party defensive driving program after they get their license? Well, mm-hmm. really, only people that really want to take that extra step and be that much more safe on the roads. So why wouldn't we want to incentivize and promote and reward people that want to do the same thing here on the concealed carry market? That's a, that's a great idea. You know, and I think also if you included a little bit of extra vetting for schools or whatever, you know, that that would be that would be yeah, that would be a great idea. It also sets the tone for a nationally sure. recognized CCW. Because at that point, when states are concerned about, hey, what's this state over here doing and why should I let them into our state, our sovereign state? I get that. I understand that each state governs and rules their own, you know, provinces. But if if it, all of a sudden there is this nationally recognized CCW that in order for you to maintain it, you had to demonstrate 40 hours of recognized education and training specific to that subject. I mean, why wouldn't people at that point you really you you remove the arguments from a logical point of view and it's just now based on emotion. It's just people that don't want it. Boom. I love it. I love it. I think that's a, that's a great idea. And I think that it'll, it'll incentivize and, and it'll push people. And like you said, I think if they're part of an elite club, I mean, that's a big thing, you know, that's uh, it keeps it. It really is. Yeah. I think it really makes a difference. All right. Let's switch hats a little bit here. Talk to me about sure. 
what you think nowadays out here, I mean, for the most part, the mentality in, of, of our society going around stating that guns are bad, that guns kill people, that um, you know everyone that carries a gun is a murderer or is capable of being a murderer. I mean, what's your take on that? So it's funny because I don't know if you ever heard about that NPR interview with, as related to your last comment, you know, carrying a gun makes you a murderer. So there was an NPR interview with a, um, a Marine colonel talking about a rifle marksmanship and the interviewer made the same comment and the Marine Corps representative responded back. Well, I mean, you have a vagina that doesn't necessarily make you a prostitute either. So I kind of use that same <laughs> tap here just because you carry a gun doesn't make you a murderer. It's just like just because you have a vagina doesn't make you a prostitute. So when you when you go about it, when you try to start throwing large labels across and, and painting people with a broad stroke, you've already lost the argument. So um, I think the best way to do things, and I've learned this because I've been the center of several controversies and several conversations at a national level. And what I try to do is, you know, if you're going to engage in these types of conversations, the first thing that I encourage people to do is recognize that you may not have all the answers, but you could be wrong in your point of view. As much as you believe in it, you, you could also be wrong. And if you're willing to step up to the table and acknowledge that and the other person is willing to give you that same courtesy, now you set the tone for true dialogue. Because I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I feel very, I feel very confident in my answers, but I also haven't heard every argument. And if I have, if I hear something that's new that causes me to question my beliefs, that's a good thing. I want, I want, to, I don't want to just be, you know, I don't want to just drink the Kool Aid and and never have any ability to to use my own um, brain to make my own choices. So if I do hear an argument that has some valid points, I can weigh that against my point of view and then I can make a more formal decision and, you know, something that's more informed and say, okay, well, I hear what your point of view is and I appreciate you trying to change my mind, but you still, I still, I still haven't changed my mind. I still believe in my point of view. And then we can, we can at least say that's a, that's a good way to end a conversation. It's a nice way to have, you know, constructive dialogue and it, it's, it's hard because the biggest problem that we have with this particular subject is the difference between using logic and using emotion in the conversation. The moment you have a conversation where people start throwing out many of the talking points that you use, they're very easy to dismantle through just facts and you know logic. And as soon as you do that, what ends up happening is that you end up creating a, a very toxic environment because the other person um, is they're coming from a, a place that's emotionally based, whereas you're coming from a place that's logically based and you really have a hard time communicating at that point. So um, the best way that I have found is to just be willing to acknowledge that I could be wrong. And if I could be wrong and I'm willing to step and willing to take a seat at this table, I would like to think that you would also be willing to do the same thing. And if you are, it's kind of like, um, you know, those, those uh, college campus things where, you know, here's my belief, change my mind. You know, here's my sure. talking point, change my mind. And you, you know, sometimes you hear some pretty good arguments and sometimes you don't. And sometimes what ends up happening is that you end up supporting your own beliefs because you can, you can use your beliefs to help counter the argument points that your opponent is bringing to the table. And that's how I look at it. I mean, I, I try to use good old fashioned debate methodology, you know, that you learned in high school. I, I mean, I don't know if they still do debates in high school, but, um, 
when I went through high school, you know, I participated in debates and I thought it was actually at the, at the time I hated it. I was like, Ugh. but now I really appreciate it because it gave you a format to challenge, not just because I had a lot of times when I was assigned subjects, I didn't believe in those subjects, but I had to research them and I had to become knowledgeable enough to hold a, an intelligent conversation with another person. So that's the other thing. It's like, have you been able to put yourself in the shoes of your opponent and think of it from their point of view? And if you have, and then you can take a step back and say, okay, you know what? I've seen it from your point of view. I have at least had that vision and I still am not swayed. I'm still not convinced of what you're telling me is the actual better, better argument. So talk to me a little bit about your company, okay, as far as starting whatever, 10 years ago or something like that, right? 2008, you said it started? Uh, actually, we opened our doors in 2003. 2003. So you've been basically an entrepreneur uh, building your own company. And uh, t talk to me about challenges that you've had over the last 15 years. Well, like I said in the beginning, like I did what I own. Trident Concepts is basically just it's a training company that's built around my philosophy that I was raised on in the Navy. It's the only way that I know how to do things, which is performance. You, you build everything around performance and those performances are gauged by standards. And so when you can do that, it helps you to be able to make informed choices again, like, okay, this works, this doesn't work. So um, we've been largely successful at maintaining our, the integrity of our standards, but the challenges that have come as a result are, and it maybe is not necessarily a bad thing, is that we have a tendency, our reputation precedes us in many cases, which is people are intimidated because there's the possibility that they could fail. And that failure is, for a lot of people, difficult to swallow. So the challenges that I have is to try to encourage people not to look at that as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. And not to be worried about whether or not you pass or fail, but what did you learn? What did you walk away from? Yeah, 100%. Class? Yep. So, it, you know, basically we're trying to stay true to our beliefs and at the same time help the customer, the student base to recognize that it's okay to fail. Because if you're not failing, you're not pushing the envelope. And that's one of the philosophies that we bring to the table, which is it's an old saying from, from my, my era, which was get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so if you're constantly working on things that you're good at because you don't want to work on things that you suck at, well, then you're not really growing. You're not improving. This morning, my workout had double unders in it, and I hate them. And, they, and this morning was no different. It was a grueling workout that I hated. And I could have easily substituted some other movement for the double unders. And instead, I'm like, well, the only way I'm going to get better is if I actually work on them and work on them under duress when I'm fatigued and feeling the, the stress of the workout. You know, it doesn't do me any good to work when I'm fresh and, and prime. It only helps me when I'm at that fatigue level. So we try to encourage people to have that same philosophy. And it's been it's been largely successful because I think people nowadays can appreciate what that does is that that helps them to give them a quantifiable answer as to whether or not are you are you good enough so talk to me a little bit about Jeff Gonzalez okay about <laughs> your mindset how you're give me let's talk about a daily ritual I and mean, when you wake up in the morning to when <laughs> you put your head on on that bed well um 
they're they're kind of that ironically whether i'm traveling or whether i'm home they're pretty much the same um i'll get up in the morning and the two things that i'm pretty big at other than just you know personal hygiene is uh mobility and dry fire so um every day i do a little mobility uh routine to help me kind of um keep my body in as best a condition as possible and then i will do a little dry fire and i don't spend that much you know now because here's the other thing about those is that i don't feel like i have to do a half hour or one hour of hot yoga to be to, to recognize and gain the value from mobility because what i do is i do it on a daily basis and so if i do 10 minutes of mobility work every day but i do that for the entire year I feel as though I gain more from that. And that's one of the points that we try to get across to people. It's all about consistency. It's not necessarily what you did one time in the month. You did great that one time and congratulations. But it's about the consistency of whatever it is that you're trying to do. Um, and my mobility – and I, I, I added mobility to my, um, to my daily routine probably about two years ago because my – my my the physical demands that I was putting on my body I was starting to starting to feel them in a negative way so um, the stretching and mobility work that I would do prior to my workouts were awesome but it just became more it just became a better routine for me to actually do that and it's nothing really fancy I mean it really isn't it like literally takes me like 10 minutes or less to do it um, on the dry fire I do the same thing on the dry fire I spend probably about five minutes or less on a dry fire routine. And the, the benefits to that are that, you know, I, I, I it, as an instructor, it seems as though I get a lot of time to actually pull the trigger. And most of the time when I am pulling the trigger, it's from a demonstration point of view. So it's not true. It's not genuine because I have to slow things down for the students to be able to pick up what it is that I'm trying to, to teach them. So um, the dry fire helps me to maintain good balance across the board. And the dry fire is also multidimensional and multi-platform based. So it's not just... I don't do the same thing every day. Uh, one day I might be handguns. The next day I might be revolvers. The next day I might be on my rifles. The next day I might be on my shotguns. So I change things up and I vary it. The routine is generally the same, but the platform varies, um, you know, and it allows me to maintain familiarity on the gun. And um, just, you know, the most important thing is just, you know, having that consistency. So even if I don't get to shoot for two, three, four, sometimes five weeks, the fact that I'm still touching the gun and working on, you know, that front sight press, just, you know, if, even if I haven't touched the gun in five weeks when I pick it up, there might be a little bit of a, a little dust that I need to, to wipe off. But overall, I, I get right into it. Um, I work out four times a week and my workouts are pretty intense. I'm pretty happy about that. Even at this age, the, uh, the ability to work out to me is what really keeps my mind <laughs> right without being able to work out. Like, um, I went through a divorce about eight years ago and I went into a really, really dark place. My, my physicality diminished even before my divorce because the life, the quality of life and the latter parts of my marriage were terrible. Um, and my quality of life was suffering as well as my physical form. So I was in a really bad place. Um, I had a good friend of mine that introduced me to one of my oldest friends, uh, about 10 years ago. And, and Johnny was just instrumental in getting me back into the in, into what I knew. I've always been physical, even through my younger years. I've always been a very physically performance-based individual. So working out four times a week at this level is not easy, especially at my age. But it's it's also one of the things that defines me. So I enjoy doing it. Um, 
I have taken it as a as an opportunity to help encourage because one of the you know when you ask me like what are the some of the challenges that I see well some of the challenges that I see from the student's perspective is honestly the physicality of combat um, you know we talk about the four pillars the technical tactical mental and physical and so many people just omit the physical aspect of combatives so um, I try to encourage people through my through my posts that, you know, you've got to stay in that arena. You've got to stay physical because, you know, it, it was just something that was bred into me. You know, I wanted to be able to outperform our opponents no matter what battlefield we were on, wherever I was. And I still believe in that to this day. And unfortunately, the bad guys are not aging. Bad guys stay, I apologize for that. Bad guys stay the same age group. You know, they're, they're in between that 14 to 30 year range. So you're going to you're going to pay for it right. no matter what so you've seen i mean over the last decade or so i mean you've seen the society itself okay we're talking about younger generation uh you've seen them make a a, a pretty powerful switch in the way that their their thought process is okay mm. um i know that i've seen it as far as recruits coming in the academy have you um, what are you doing about this as far as your clientele? Since you're dealing with civilians now, and I'm assuming that you do get a portion of young of the younger generation, um, are you ha are there issues uh, of the younger generation, their mentality? Um, do they want to put in the work? That's their biggest knock, I guess, right now. Do they yeah. want to put in the work, you know? So, oh, man, that's such a... I mean, we can go on and on and on about that. But the biggest problem that I see, <laughs> unfortunately, that's the big one, is people don't want to put the work in. People want to just, they, they want the, um, the mail order aspect. They want to be able to just order something online and, and have it. And I try to tell people, I'm like, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Any skill is, I mean, you have gifted athletes. But when you're at when you're playing at the professional level, gifted being gifted only gets you so far because everybody on that that playing field is gifted. You've yeah. got to do the work that yeah. separates you from all the gifted athletes. And the same thing in in you know when um, from my Navy days was everybody went through the same thing. We're all brothers. We've all accomplished the same exact thing. What makes me better than the uh, the other guy? Well, I'm willing to work harder. On my shooting, I'm willing to work harder on my air apps. I'm willing to work harder in these areas, whereas other guys choose to work harder in different areas. I, you know, my comms brilliant, my comms suck. I was terrible at that, but other guys were willing to put the work in for there. And so, you know, I, the hardest thing to get across to people is you have got to recognize that nothing is free in this world. You're not entitled. You're not entitled to anything. I tell this to my students every single day. Don't expect to graduate with a passing score here. You're only going to get that passing score if you earned it. Nobody is entitled here. And I've had I've had some really knockdown drag out fights with both individuals as well as departments. I had a department that sent like, I don't know, six officers to a class I did, and they all failed. And I got a call from their chief who was saying that he was withholding the payment until he got a certificate for each of his officers. And I'm like, well, I'm not giving you your officers certificates. They get a training memo. It says they attended class and they completed this many hours of training, but they didn't Correct. pass. And we went round and round on that. And I was wow. not willing to, I was not willing to concede my point. It's like, Hey, 
you're only going to be, if you pass, you'll be recognized as passing. And if not, you'll be recognized as not passing. And so the biggest hurdle that I see for people these days is they don't want to put the work in and anything. Yep. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, like, and I shouldn't say it like that. I feel like people will put the work in if they see the value to it. So the trick for me is trying to help people understand that number one, this is not easy and that there's a progression and you have to trust the process. That's the other thing, right? You've got to trust the process. And if you trust the process, consistency over time is going to show you results. That's the hard part is, is to get them through that process. And once I do, a lot of times we create some of the best gunfighters in the world simply because they have committed to the process and they put the time and the work in. And then at the end of the whatever time period that they've given themselves, they've, they've, they've matured into a, you know, just a, like somebody that I, I feel very confident is going to be successful in the most extreme conditions possible. That's a great point. And, and, you know, going back to working and putting the work in, mm -hmm. I mean, firearms, just like pretty much anything in combatives, these are perishable skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to train at them. You have to have consistency, which you made a great point. And the reality is that if you're not putting in the time, you're not putting in the repetitions, you know, shit, when people come through, I, I own a martial arts school, combatives um, um, program, and when people come here and they say, well, we're going to come, you know, once, maybe twice a week, and then they fall off to once a month, and then they start asking, hey, you know, why am I not progressing? You know, <laughs> why, why are, are other people around me just getting better? Why are they honing their skill set? Well, it's simple, man. You, you're not, you're not here enough. You're not doing enough repetitions you're just not you don't want it bad enough and it's unfortunate that the mentality especially of the you know 22 to 30 age generation that that's the mindset that they carry in it and it's you know i have two kids in that bracket so i'm <laughs> i struggle with that day in and day I, out I but uh, well one of the other things too and this you know so it's 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 also a leadership issue it's a leadership opportunity and what i mean by that is when i have a student who and i can tell by the emails that i'll get hey the last questions and the, the last kind of a, a series of questions that tells me that they are um on the fence as to whether or not they really want to commit to the class and i'll try to ask them some very penetrating questions and once i get into a good dialogue which a lot of times it takes maybe one or two emails and we're we're really exchanging good um, dialogue I'll, I'll lay it out there for them. I'll say, here's, here's my expectation of you. And when I lay out my expectations for them, what I have found is that most people are now willing to really tackle them. They're willing to put the work in. So we talk about the two, um, there's kind of like two major hurdles for people to come into a training class at a beginner level. And not, not so much at the intermediate level, but at a beginner level. And, and they're the, they're two, what we call the two fears. And the first fear is the fear of the unknown. So fear of the unknown is typically it's a, you can see that predominantly more on the female genders, whereas women um, are afraid to get involved in things that they don't know what they don't know. Um, and while that's a broad brush paint, we still see plenty of guys that have that same fear. And then fear of not knowing. So that's predominantly a, a male where guys do not want to look bad in front of their peers. So in a way to, to not look bad is to not do it. 
Mm-hmm. So we try to tackle those two fears independently. Um, but once we are able to set an expectation for the student, most of the time those students are willing to they're willing to tackle it. They're willing to give it. A, they're willing to at least put themselves out there and, and see what happens. And most of the time they don't pass. But the thing, there's a difference between a positive outcome and a positive experience. You can have a positive experience and still have a negative outcome, right? You don't have to pass the class to walk away and say, wow, that really rocked my world. That changed my perspective on how I look at things. That, that helped me to see where I'm really lacking. And now I have a roadmap to where I want to go. Like I see these guys on the firing line that are killing it and I want to be like that. Well, they didn't get there overnight. It's like um, somebody that has a weight problem. Well, you didn't get there overnight. You didn't wake up 100 pounds overweight. It took time for you to get there and it's going to take time for you to get back to where you want to be. So that's the same principle that I tell these guys. It's like, hey, listen, um, you, you weren't endowed with this. Nobody, nobody pops out of the womb with a six shooter ready to get it on. It's a learned skill that is a not an easy skill to learn. Well, at least to be to be at the top end of the game, it takes effort. And when I set those expectations, I find it so valuable to watch the student put the work in at that point because now they know what to expect. They have an understanding, and it makes a difference. All right. So this is and this I have a little bit of an issue with um, with this next subject that we want to talk about. Um, and I'm pretty, you know, so, you know, this show, you can cuss, you can say whatever the hell you want, you know, we're pretty much open and, and it has to do with, um, instructors coming into the field. Okay. And okay. so-called instructors, uh, in my book and, and the years that I've been teaching and, and been part of, of, I guess this community, <clears throat> I see guys coming out of the military. I see guys coming out of law enforcement and automatically saying, okay, I'm an instructor and they go out there and start teaching civilians. All right. My issue with that is, uh, unfortunately, what I've seen, especially in this area, is some of these guys, for the most part, you know, some of the guys went through boot camp and even specialized units, Jeff. I mean, for the most part, I'm sure that when you came out, I mean, you had to practice on your own, develop, see what really worked for you. It wasn't like you just were a Navy SEAL and then came here and started teaching civilians everything the way that the Navy SEALs either taught it or, or that, that you learned it. You had to kind of put your own spin on it uh, based on trial and error and seeing what, what developed uh, as you know throughout your career. And what I see is some of these guys just kind of stepping in and then start teaching civilians and they're teaching them different things that when you go and start breaking it down, it's, I have a problem with it. Not only their methodology, but the fact is that, hey, listen, maybe what you should do is go take, you know, a few instructor level classes, go hone your own skill set. And then if you want to start, you know, developing and building your, your, your business, you can go from there. But shit, I see this everywhere. I see cops that are retired. They come out and all of a sudden they're firearms instructors. I'm like, dude, you never fucking taught a day in your life in 25 years. So what makes you, you know, the same thing goes for some of the military guys. You know, with all due respect, the fact is to become an instructor, it's not just just you going to the battlefield and shooting or you going into the ring and fighting. In my opinion, you have to develop and you have to have that that 
power within you, right, to be able to instruct. Not everyone's an instructor. Would you agree? I, I would. Um, I, 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 I understand what I understand your complaint and your frustration. Um, we like we have like I have to fill instructor positions on a regular basis. You know, our op tempo, our um, the number of classes that we're doing, the volume of students that we're seeing, you know, I've, con- I've constantly had to adjust the number of instructors that we have. And um, our instructor process is the same. It hasn't really changed over the last decade that we've been doing this. And that is last decade that we've been bringing on instructors, that is. And that is very simple. You, you have to, like ha- having the subject matter expertise is a very small percentage of it. It really is. I mean, that gets you in, that gets you that doesn't even really get you in the door. I mean, that gets you in the line to go through the door and that's about it. I'm not saying that I don't value those skills, but I expect that if you're coming from a special operations community, dude, you're not bringing really anything that grand to the table that every other special operations guy doesn't have. So then the next part to that equation is their formal education. Like, what do they have from a formal education point of view as it relates to instructorship? Um, I'm very lucky that the Navy invested a tremendous amount of time and energy into me teaching me how to be an instructor. And then they put me in a command for three years that that's all I did. That was the only thing I did. I woke up every morning. I PT'd the students. We taught them the, the, the trade craft that they needed to be able to be successful as they move to the next level. So I was very lucky to, to have that experience. Um, so... I'm really big on podium presence to me, podium, like the, the, there's, there's subject matter expertise. There's podium presence, which is your ability to manage the, the, the student body to, to be able to, to, to make sure that you're teaching the material as prescribed. And then the third part to that is time management. You've got to be respectful of the student's time. If you, if you put out that your class is an eight hour class, and you go 10 hours, you better have a damn good reason why you went 10 hours. Now, back in the day, we used to do that. We used to have like um, like a three-day class was actually a 30-hour training class, you know, because we worked 10 hours. But I would tell students that if we were done at eight, an eight-hour day, then I wasn't going to just keep pushing you for t- 10 hours. But what I needed was I needed to make sure that we covered the daily objectives. And, and if it took me eight hours, great. But if it took me 10 hours, we're going to have to push it until we got those daily objectives done because the next day we can't start behind the power curve. And, and so that's where time management comes in. And that's the, the – like those three things are what to me make up the lion's share of an instructor's capacity. But then the one that's an intangible, the one that's difficult to manage is the, um, is the relationship between you and the students. Like there's, there's a relationship that you have to acknowledge and you have to cultivate that relationship through trust and through, um, uh, expectations. And once you have cultivated that, that, that bond, if you will, that relationship, then the student is going to trust you, to take them on this journey because that journey is not going to be a pretty one. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be pitted with frustrations, disappointments, failures. And so you have got to be able to manage that student's uh, emotional roller coaster ride that they're going to go through, and that was something that kind of I took for granted because when I was um, as a buds instructor, it, I, I didn't care. I honestly didn't care. You know, I'm here because back then, as a buds instructor, and even to this day, my job was to separate the wheat from the chaff, who belonged and who didn't belong. When guys ask me, "Do you remember me as a student?" I'm like, "Well, it depends." 
I only really remember two types, two categories of students. I remember those that kicked ass and did really well. And I remember mm-hmm. those that I wanted to get rid of. So which one are you? You know, which one were you? You tell me, how should I remember you? Should I remember you because you were the one that kicked ass or should I remember you because you were the one that I wanted to get rid of? <laughs> Hell and yeah. that's, right. So that's how I talk to, that's how when guys ask me, yeah. hey, do you remember me when I went? I'm like, mm, yeah. that's a tough question. I'm not sure you want the answer to that. But uh, <laughs> most of the guys that I know these days, they, they, they love it. I, I, I do love the guys. Um, and I'm so proud of the guys, that, the generation of students that I put through training. I am so proud of those guys. They have been killing it and representing in such the most noblest of way. I couldn't be prouder of those guys. And I am just, I am awe-inspired to be able to be a part of that process, to, to have implemented, uh, you know, like inputted my DNA on them. So I'm very fortunate that I got that opportunity. And that, again, is one of the differences between how I look at instructors and how a lot of other people look at instructors. It's like subject matter expertise gets you in line. Podium presence is what's going to get you through the door. Time management is what's going to keep you on the podium. And that is it. And I've let go of instructors because they did like, they might've been able to sneak through it, but they weren't able to maintain it. Great points. Great points. All right. Talk to me a little bit about your overall forward goal, your, your goal for the next say decade. Where do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? Oh, well, truthfully, I'd like to be sitting on a porch, um, possibly relaxing, not doing a damn no, bit. Hell no, not you, anything. man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do like the idea of retirement. Mm-hmm. I do like the idea of enjoying the fruits of my labor um, and being able to, to spend time with my family. Um, one, of the, one of the regrets that I have is that I was running in the red for the better half of my adult life. I, I haven't known anything sure. different. Um, when I took this position as director of training here in Austin, I actually stopped traveling as much as I mm-hmm. used to. Like I went from doing 25 classes a year to now doing eight to 10 classes a year. So I'm actually starting to develop roots and, and, and a normalcy that I have not ever experienced since I was a teenager in high school. Um, so truthfully, I will look forward to, to relaxing a little bit and enjoying the, the hard work that I put in. And my, you know, one of the most important things that I feel is that I, I have to leave a legacy. And when I leave that legacy, then I can sit on that porch and enjoy the fact that that legacy is going to continue to live on. And so now everything that I'm doing is, is directed at that legacy. And what am I doing? And for me, that is training the next crop of instructors to be able to take the reins and be able to move forward. Uh, I'm not interested so much in training every student these days. I'd like to be able to do that, but there's, there, there's only, there's only one of me, but being able to train the trainers that are going to take the, the torch and move forward is kind of where my legacy, um, I feel is going to be most, I guess, most productive. Awesome. Great words, Chef, man. I mean, some good stuff, no doubt about it. Listen, where can people follow you, either on social or your website? Sure. Well, the website is easy. That's uh, tridentconcepts.com. And um, as far as social media, you, they can find me on my personal Instagram page, my personal Facebook page, uh, also my, on my Twitter. And then they can also follow Trident Concepts on Facebook and uh, Instagram as well. They can They can get all of that. Um, we're doing a lot more stuff on social media these days. I hate to say it, but I came to that game way late. Um, I was so busy in the trenches 
that uh, everybody that was not in the trenches with me was doing great work on social media. And I popped my head up and I'm like, wow, I'm way behind here. So I'm playing a game of catch up. So anybody that's interested, uh, we're going to be focusing most of our efforts. I will say this. Um, I don't respond to DMs or private messages just because I just don't have the time to do that. So if you're going to try to communicate with me, the best thing to do is post post it up on my Facebook, post it up on my Instagram, and I'll do my best to respond. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Listen, we would love to have you on again. You're definitely a wise dude, sure. man. You got a lot. We can sit here for hours and, and have a very powerful yeah. conversation, no doubt about it. All right, brother. Listen, it was great to have you on, and we look forward to seeing you in the future, man. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate it, and uh, good luck to you as well. Boom. There you have it. What a great conversation. Jeff is not only a wise guy and knows his shit, but he is a great instructor. More importantly, he cares about his students and he speaks with passion about them. I mean, that is a quality that you look for in a good instructor across the board. All right, man. If you are looking to strengthen your mindset, to increase your self-confidence, to take it up to a level, a level where warriors operate and execute from, Man, go to wardevacademy.com forward slash crucible and put in your app. That's W-A-R-D-E-V academy.com forward slash crucible. Listen, I'll also have the links on the show notes, but if you're really on the sideline and you're thinking about attending this event, step up, put in your application and do something and take action because this is the type of event that will change your life forever. All right, until next time, your life may be challenging and full of dangers, but never retreat. Your last battle may be your greatest victory.